As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey y'all, thanks for listening to Killer Queens. Or KQ if you're nasty. Welcome to the show where two 90s loving country chicks gab about true crime and tell each other to talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. I'm Torella. And I'm Tori. And we're sisters who have always loved true crime and decided to turn that obsession into a show with a light take on the topic. Diet True Crime, it's all the flavor and fewer calories. Mm. Now, with our show, you'll get true crime, 90s nostalgia, and a few four-letter words sprinkled in. Because I always say that Polly Pockets and True Crime go together like peas and carrots. Be sure to check out our case submission form on our website at killerqueenspodcast.com and follow us on social media and YouTube. Now grab your Surge, your 3D Cool Ranch Doritos, and your kitten surprise, and let's get into the episode. This episode contains discussion of brutal murder, uh, including blunt force trauma, rape, assault, death threats, suicide, and animal death, and some information about child sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. In March of 1960, Frances Murphy, Lillian Oding, and Mildred Lindquist set off for a girl's trip at Starved Rock State Park in LaSalle County, Illinois. Just days later, the three women were found in a cave bludgeoned to death with their wrists bound. After months of investigation and a signed confession, Chester Weger was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of the three women. After 60 years in prison, Weger still maintains his innocence and is fighting to clear his name. Hey, you guys, welcome to Killer Queens. If you've never been here before, we want to give you just a little information about how the show is set up and what it's meant to accomplish. If you have been here before, welcome back. You can just use that handy skip ahead feature here if you want to. We want to give a message to friends and family of the victims. We know that there may be someone involved in the case who might listen one day, and we want you to know that our intention is to only bring awareness to this case. And while we do use personal stories in some instances and our own humor in order to tell the story in a way that listeners can relate, we have the utmost respect for victims and their families. We created Killer Queens to be a place where we can have open discussions about cases just like you would with friends. We are not investigators. We use information that is available to the public, such as documentaries, case files, and media coverage. Using this information, we intend to tell the story of what happened in each case that we cover. Now, will you agree with our interpretations or conclusions of each case? Well, heck no. Mm-mm. We each approach cases from different perspectives, life experiences, and beliefs that we already have in place. And sometimes these differences are slight, yet they can be wide enough to cause divide and upset some of those listening. 
We do our best to present the facts as we find them in our research, but we do bring our own perspectives to the case. We understand that you will too. We want you to know that this is a safe space to discuss differences in opinions in a civilized manner. Our style may not be your personal preference, and if that's the case, we know you'll be able to find one of the many other shows out there to tell the story the way you want to hear it. We can be grown-ups about it if you can. Now, if we are your cup of tea and you want even more KQ, you can join our Patreon and get access to our entire catalog of episodes ad-free and access to bonus episodes too. And I'll give you just a little hint if you're an ad skipper, um, but you still want the deals that we have from our sponsors each week, you can scroll down to the show notes and see what coupons we have available for you right down there. But you didn't hear it from us. Mm-mm, mm-mm, that's a pro tip, but I, I'll deny ever sharing it. Right. So all that being said, let's get into the story. All right, you guys. So this is a case that is for some solved, some unsolved. So, so Yeah. I hate it. Exactly. So we'll be we'll be interested to see where you fall, you know, on the spectrum after you hear everything. Now, remember, there is a lot of information out here about this case, but it happened in the 60s. So we don't have as much as we would have maybe now, but our job is to bring everything from out and put it into one cohesive story and then yes. you decide what you think about it. Well, and also, I just wanted to add to that that This is, for some, kind of the bird's eye view of the case. We could spend an entire series on this case, but... Not what we do here. Right. But there are other avenues if you do want a more extensive look at the Mm -hmm. case, so... Yeah, there is a docuseries on HBO called The Murders at Starved Rock, That's not necessarily a linear, cohesive story either, you know, because it's it's very all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's there's a lot of, you know, moving around. I feel like jumping around in it and a lot of like what they do on the news with like, let's ask the people on the street, you know, they're like, what do you think? Do you think he's innocent or guilty? And it'll just be people who lived in the area and like, well, I think he's guilty or I think he's innocent. And they're not they're not country like us, but like. (laughs) I don't know. So that's definitely there. The defense attorney, current defense attorney in the case, Andy Hale, has a a multi-part podcast called The Starved Rock Murders with Andy Hale. And, um, you know, that's something you can look at. There's news articles, there's YouTube videos, there's all kinds of stuff. So, yes, absolutely. All right. Well, we do want to thank Beth for writing this case. Hey, girl, thanks. Hey, girl, thanks. And Lauren Lennox for requesting it. Yes. Uh, All right. So we're going to get into it here. All right. Starved Rock State Park is located along the Illinois River in LaSalle County, Illinois. It was made Illinois' second state park in 1911. The park has 18 canyons with more than 13 miles of trails with access to waterfalls, sandstone overhangs, and overlooks. Okay, Starved Rock got its name um, in a pretty morbid way? I would say so. According to a Native American legend dating back to the 1760s. So, Chief Pontiac of the Ottawa tribe had been killed by a Peoria brave while attending a tribal council in southern Illinois. And the Peoria were a sub-tribe of the Illinois Confederation. 
The legend says that during one of the battles that took place to avenge the chief's death, a band of the Illinois tribe was under attack by a band of the Potawatomi? Yes. Okay. Allies of the Ottawa and took refuge at the top of a 125-foot sandstone butte. The Illinois people had very little food with them. They could only get water by like lowering baskets tied to vines into the Illinois River, which was 130 feet below where they were. So the Potawatomi people stayed at the foot of the rock and they camped in formation. And by doing so, the members of the Illinois tribe were unable to retrieve food. And so they slowly starved to death. And so they called it Starved Rock. It's kind of awful. That's really awful. It is sad. It's like, remember when we starved all those people? Yeah. Let's name something after it. Now, we're going to call this Starved Rock. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, but I don't know. It's just kind of like, man, that's a sad story. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. But it's apparently a very beautiful area. It's, oh my gosh. I mean, the footage that I've seen of it, it is Mm -hmm. gorgeous. I mean, it looks like a place like you definitely like want to go visit. All right. So we're going to talk about the victims. And here's something that I think about this case. We've talked about it before. They get completely lost in this. Completely. I don't know. I'm sure at the time in the 60s or 1960 when this happened, they were at the forefront of everything. But now, and even, what, 20, 40 years ago, lost, completely lost. And that is just so sad to me. So it should be sad to everybody. Yes. Yeah. Francis, who went by Frankie Murphy, was born on July 12th, 1912 in Illinois to John and Josephine Caddy. She married Robert Ward Murphy on January 16th, 1937 in Moline, Illinois, and they had four children. Her husband was the vice president and general counsel for the Borg Warner Company. Lillian Oding was born on September 7th, 1909 in Northern Ireland and married George Oding of Illinois. George was an official at the Illinois Bell Telephone Company, and the couple had three children. Mildred, Monica, Emma, Schubert, Lindquist, That is a name. She was born on September 10th, 1906, and she was married to Robert Lindquist, who was the vice president of Chicago's Harris Trust and Savings Bank. The couple had two children, and all three couples lived in a Chicago suburb. Francis, Lillian, and Mildred were all members and community leaders of Riverside's Presbyterian Church. And after church on Sunday, March 13th, 1960, the three women decided to take a three-day winter trip together. They were having a little girls' trip, and they made sure to go grocery shopping for their families that day. And Lillian was especially excited for the trip because she had been nursing her husband back to health for quite some time after a heart attack. So she was going to get away. They were just going to enjoy the weekend. Absolutely. Get a little break. So the three women headed out in Frankie's Ford station wagon to begin the two-hour drive to Starved Rock. And like you said, they were looking forward to a really peaceful girls' trip. I mean, and that's like, it just, I don't know, kind of hits you. It's like, how many times do you just like, you know, you're looking forward to like a little weekend trip or, you know, a a night away or whatever. Mm -hmm. Gosh, it's terrifying. Mildred brought along her copy of A Field Guide to the Birds. Lillian brought a novel, The Lincoln Lords, and they all had their knitting as well as a pair of binoculars to share and a 35 millimeter camera. It's just so wholesome. mm -hmm. Yeah, they wanted to like just go and 
spend some time together and like bird watch and knit and read. My gosh, you should be able to do that. Yeah. So they check in at the Starved Rock Lodge and they bring their luggage to their rooms. They had two adjoining rooms with Lillian staying in room 109 and Mildred and Frankie in room 110. They freshened up after their drive. They headed to the lodge's dining room for lunch. And then after lunch, they headed out for a 1.2-mile walk into the St. Louis Canyon, which is one of the park's main attractions. Lillian's husband, George, had been expecting a phone call from his wife that night as she had promised to call and check on him, but he never gets a call from her. So finally, George calls the lodge, trying to reach her through the switchboard operator, but there's no answer from the room either. He tried calling again on Tuesday, but again, he could not get a hold of her. After several attempts to get in touch with Lillian, George called Francis's husband, Robert. Robert couldn't get in touch with his wife either, so he calls Robert Lindquist to see if he had any success in reaching his wife, Mildred. Now, obviously none of them have been able to get in touch with their wives. After the attempts to call their wives, they end up calling the police. So the women's rooms were checked, and it was found that none of their bags had been unpacked. We're a couple days in now, and they've not unpacked their bags. There had been a snowstorm on Tuesday, and Frankie's car had no signs of any snow being cleared off or of being driven. On Wednesday morning, a search party was formed at the park, and just a few hours into the search, the women's bodies were found bloodied and beaten inside a cave in St. Louis Canyon. All three women had been severely beaten in the head and were placed in the cave with their skirts pulled up around their necks, their legs spread apart, and their undergarments removed. Francis and Lillian's wrists were both tied with twine. The Illinois State Police quickly took over the case, and the Illinois State's attorney, Harland Warren, was called to the scene. In an interview, Warren said that at the time, (laughs) he had no education in solving crimes, but he solved this one. Yeah. Why was he called? He's the attorney. Yeah. like state's attorney. Right. I know the prosecutor's office, like, if it's something that they're going to prosecute, might be called to a scene or something, but but it's not your job to investigate it. They have investigators. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. you can be there, sure, because yeah. you need to, I think it's important for whoever's prosecuting to witness the scene and things like that, but it's not his job to turn into a, an investigator all of a sudden. No. And he's very, like, if you watch the HBO thing... He was, R.I.P. Was very. Um, He was pretty old by the time that that documentary was made. And when he would recall things about this case, he'd be like, and we walked in, and I looked around, and I remember... Like, he keeps his eyes closed, kept his eyes closed. The whole time he talked, it was like... I don't he know. was like putting himself back at the scene. It seemed like like envisioning everything and yeah. Yeah. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so anyway, so he's got absolutely no education whatsoever in solving crimes. So they called him. Makes sense. So when he got to the scene, the state police were using flamethrowers. I've also seen them called weed burners. I don't know. But they're trying to melt the snow to look for evidence. Because remember, the snowstorm had just happened. So there's a lot of fresh snow. Warren was also looking for evidence at the scene. And he found a tree limb that was approximately three feet long, four inches thick. And it was determined to be the murder weapon. The binoculars that the women brought were also believed to have been used as a weapon. The police also found the camera that they brought, and when they developed the photos, they saw what they believed to be a man lurking in the background of the photos. Except that. Later, they figured out that it was a double negative, and so it just was big, fat, fucking nothing. How frustrating. But they they still use this as something that, like, look at this dirty lurker. And then they're like, but I mean, not. I mean, like, maybe. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we don't know. how. Like, how are we supposed to know? You know? (laughs) Investigators saw no apparent motive for robbery at the scene. Um, the women still had their watches on, their jewelry. Like, if motor, motory, if robbery was a motive. <laughs> what is motory? Like, a motive for robbery? Is that what you were? Yes, I think so. Yeah. But it didn't seem like that ended up happening. It didn't come to fruition, whatever, if that was the motive. An autopsy concluded that the women were not sexually assaulted and that they had died from skull fractures and brain damage from the severe beating. The estimated time of death was 2.30 or 3 p.m. Goodness. It's just so sad, too, because literally all they did, they got to the Starved Rock Lodge, they had lunch, and then they were murdered. Oh, my gosh. Like, I don't know. See why I'm scared to go anywhere? (sighs) Okay, let's not let's not turn this lunch now. Well, you should never be able to trust lunch. I certainly don't trust hiking. Oh Lord, no, absolutely not. It's too dangerous. Well, I don't trust moving around too much in general. You could pull something, hammies. It's a whole thing. Lunch, you could get heartburn. Like there are reasons to not trust things. You could overeat, get gas, yeah, all kinds of things. Then you get sleepy too. That's, That's another bad thing about it. But here's what I don't want to have happen. I don't want something like this. Don't let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. You know what that's from? Cinderella story. You're welcome. <laughs> you know what I learned from Cinderella story was if you get Botox, you can't move your face for an hour. <laughs> Under Yes, understandable. No, oh, I also kidding. learned. I get, I get Botox. You're not very bright and you're not very pretty. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Yes. So, I mean, there were lessons learned there. But anyway, it just makes me sad. Like, they literally, in a span of a couple hours, mm-hmm. they didn't even get to enjoy their time together, their girls' trip. It was immediately cut short. And they were murdered. Like, oh, it's just so sad. Yeah. These poor and do you ever think about, like, ladies. stuff like this? Because it's like, I wonder what, you know, obviously, they're driving up there together. And I'm sure they enjoyed that time. You know, they're listening to music or maybe have the windows down. You know, like whatever it is that they're doing. But it's just like you think about that and you look back on it and think they're driving to their death and they don't know that. And it's just so, it's just so sad. Like I hope that those moments were spent, you know, enjoying that time together. And, you know, I don't think that they were scared until whatever happened began to happen but I don't know it's just like gosh it should have been such a good day Mm -hmm. absolutely it should have been a a good couple days honestly yes yeah so as the investigation began everyone who worked at the Star of Rock Lodge was interviewed including Chester Weger he was 21 years old at the time and he was a dishwasher in the kitchen during his initial interviews he was polygraphed and had passed each test administered Weir's alibi was that he was in a room alone in the lodge writing a letter to a girl. Not a good alibi. No, that's the problem with that kind of alibi. If you're all by yourself, you can't vouch for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, also, like, I know the police viewed that as very suspicious. Your alibi is that you were alone. I'm alone a lot of the time. Exactly. Technically, that's not an alibi because nobody can corroborate it. But yeah, how many of us are alone? You know, like, I'm home alone by myself all day. That's why I take either constant videos or I get a receipt. I'm sitting here. I'm going to get a receipt for this. Mm -hmm. Get a receipt, asshole. You got to. Because that way you can, you know, I write myself receipts. Sure. And those are totally believable. Yeah. Like, see? How's the receipt? Yeah. Hello? Yeah, it's just, you know, I get that. I get that 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 doesn't help him. The whole thing is... Being by yourself, not a good alibi, and I don't, I mean, who can know if that's exact, actually what he was doing, but that is what he said he was doing, so. Right, yeah. Uyghur's coworkers were interviewed as well and said that he came into work the day following the murders with, or yes, that he came into work, excuse me, the next day after the murders with scratches on his face. Nick Spiros, Chester Uyghur calls him Spiros. I like it because I love Spyro. But I think it's Spiros. Yeah. He was the owner of the lodge and his son, George Spiros, was also employed there and both were looked into initially as well. What was Chester's reasoning, though, to his uh, co-workers for all of the scratches on his face? Okay, we're going to get into that. But basically what I heard initially or one of the things that kept coming up was that he had cut himself shaving. Mm Mm-hmm. What was that movie where um, mm-hmm. Hugh Jackman, I bit myself shaving or whatever because he had a hit. Yes, like, definitely. That's, that's what that reminded me of. But anyway, yeah. What we'll was get that movie? That. Yes. Um, it had Ashley Judd in it. Was that the old cow movie? Yes. I don't remember the name of it. Somebody will know. Yeah. Um, it wasn't even that good, honestly. But No, it was um, not. That was my favorite part. We saw it in the theater. Yeah. Initially, none of the lodge employees were brought in, but Chester Weger had been an original suspect. Other theories the state police, um, the Illinois State Police had were that the mafia was involved or that it was a madman who had recently escaped from a mental institution nearby. 
no reason for any of this. They just, you know. I wonder how many times in the 60s they were like, it's a madman who's escaped from a mental institution. Like, well, I mean, same with what, 70s and 80s? Like, it's it's Satan worshipers. And yeah, I don't know. Throw in aliens too. Dear God, you know? I mean, might as well. Well, I still think about that with the, oh my gosh, what was it called? The Dyatlov Pass? That was aliens. Totally. But anyway, so all three of the husbands banded together and they put up a $30,000 reward for any information. That's a lot of money in 1960. Come on. Yes. And then Nick Spiros added $5,000 to the reward as well. Even though they had this reward, there were no arrests made for months following the murders, but the investigation continued on. During the investigation, the residents of LaSalle County were scared that the murderer was still on the loose and were double and triple locking their doors, understandably so. Harland Warren, the state's attorney, had been accused of bungling evidence by his opposition for the next term in office. So he kept on working to find the answer, uh, find an answer to who had killed the women. And as Warren worked through the evidence, he decided to count the strands on the twine that had been used to tie Francis and Lillian's wrists. He found that there were 32 strands on that rope. He then went back to the lodge and went to the kitchen and found some cord and compared it to the twine on the scene. And he counted on that cord that he had found in the kitchen, 32 strands. And investigators then discovered that the cord in the kitchen belonged to Chester Weaker. And he had been known to carry that type of rope with him. Now, he said the reason why he had that twine or rope or whatever was because he liked to do cat's cradle things. And, you know, so I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry, but when it comes to fibers, if it's not a red trilobal fiber, then I don't even want to hear about it. I'd even accept a blue trilobal fiber, but... Sure. Really trilobal is what we're looking at. What show was uh-huh. that from? It was a show we did by accident We um, on Doc Jams. Anyway, there was this episode where they found these fibers and, you know, it's fiber evidence is most of... The, I mean, this, this is consistent with this is similar to, this is not a direct forensic match. So usually what you're going to find is something that's similar to or whatever. But in this one particular case, they found these red trilobal fibers. So when you look at it, the fibers have the exact same, like they had this very unique shape to them and they were red and they were found in a car. Mm -hmm. And it was like, that's one of the things they used to tie this serial killer to these victims. And I don't know, that just felt a little more substantial than just like, I hand counted the strands myself. And if you watch the HBO thing, The Murders at Starved Rock, he's very proud of this too. He's like, and wouldn't you know it? Mm-hmm. 32 strands. 32 strands, yep. So let's talk a little bit about Chester Weger's background. Uh, Chester Weger was born on March 3rd, 1939. He was a veteran with the nickname of Rocky. He had a tattoo on his arm. Was it on his arm? Or his oh, chest? Oh, sure was. Yep. Nope. Yeah, it was on his, his arm. arm. That said Rocky, so don't forget it. He had a wife and two children at home and was working at the lodge instead of working with his father in a house painting business. There were rumors that Uyghur sexually assaulted his wife, but he did have a juvenile record of rape sexual assault. So... 
When Chester was 12, he had been charged with the rape of an eight-year-old girl who had been walking home with Chester's younger sister, Mary. So Mary and the girl had been walking home. They split off on their respective paths. And according to Weger, he found the girl after she'd been raped and he helped her get dressed and then he carried her home. He was arrested, but he claims that the father of the girl asked police to let him go and that like her family believed that he was helping her after the rape was committed, that her family did not believe that he committed this rape. And we will talk more about this later, but just mm-hmm. know that this is in his history. Keep that right in your, in your melons there. Yeah. So after Harlan Warren discovered the matching twine in the kitchen at the lodge, Deputy William Dummett, this fucking guy. Yeah. He drove Chester to Chicago for questioning and another polygraph test. Which is very interesting because he's already passed four of them, I think. Three or four tests. And for whatever reason, they decided we're going to give him one more. It feels like they obviously want a specific outcome. So they're just going to keep on testing until they get that outcome. Yes. And wouldn't you know it, this is the one. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just very... Okay, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So Chester agreed to go to Chicago, but he said that he wasn't going to take the polygraph without a lawyer present or a lawyer president. Which is your right. Yes, God-given right. Mm -hmm. But the test was administered anyway. And in an interview decades later, Chester said that he purposefully threw the test. He just, he fudged it because he had asked to take the test with an attorney present. Bold move, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. Like it's, I don't, I don't, I, um, yeah. Yeah. So Weger was interrogated by both Deputy Dummett and Deputy Wayne Hess. And after failing the test, Deputy Dummett attempted to persuade Weger to confess to the murders, but Weger maintained his innocence. 
On the drive back from Chicago, Deputy Dummett allegedly repeatedly threatened Weger that if he didn't sign a confession, that he would be sentenced to the electric chair. And Weger says that Dummett told him that he was going to, quote, ride the thunderbolt and threatened him the entire drive back from Chicago. Weger also claims that he was beaten by Deputy Utsi, um, who says that <laughs> he was also there during the interrogation. So he says, then this is not confirmed or denied this is just what Uyghur has said. Yeah, this is according to Uyghur. The apparently there's not any evidence of him being beaten. Right. After the interrogation in September, the police, uh, state police assigned a team of troopers to do surveillance on Chester and he was being followed by the police. He was under constant surveillance for a month. On November 16th, 1960, Chester Weger was picked up by LaSalle County authorities to again be questioned. He maintained his innocence throughout the entire interrogation. After several hours of the interrogation and alleged threats, Weger confessed to the murders of Francis Murphy, Lillian Oding, and Mildred Lindquist. The only thing tying Weger to the crimes at this point, though, was his confession, because none of the physical evidence pointed to Weger, with the exception of the theory that he used similar consistent with twine and it was found in the kitchen where he worked that's literally it other than the confession yeah. so the day after chester Weger signed the confession he recanted and he claimed that the police had threatened his life and his confession was coerced and he also stated that there was not a lawyer present when he signed the confession and he felt like signing it was the only way to save his life okay so just keep all that in mind now, in 1959, a robbery and rape had occurred at Matheson Park. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, which is located next to Starve Rock State Park. Um, Matheson Park is also located close to Uyghur's home. So one night, a young girl and her boyfriend were walking through the park when a man pulled out a rifle. He made the girl tie her boyfriend's hands with twine. He then raped the young woman, and she said that the whole time he's doing this, he's rolling a bullet in his mouth. Uyghur was put in a lineup. Both the girl and her boyfriend ID'd him as the person who'd attacked him. Now, hang on a second. Do you want to talk about that lineup? I would love to talk about that lineup. Also, they didn't take them seriously at first and didn't believe them at all. So the lineup didn't occur until during this investigation, right? Mm, yeah, as far as I know. Yeah, at first, they don't believe this happened. They're like, you're making it up or whatever. Did not take it seriously at all. Now, Chester Weger has been arrested for this murder, this triple murder. Now they do a lineup. And so Chester is, how old is he at this point? 20? 21. Yeah, very young guy. So there's Chester Weger, 21 years old, young guy, no facial hair, He looked, some people compared him to like James Dean. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then the other people they put in the lineup are men in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Some of them have mustaches or beards. He's the only one even remotely close to his age range. That's not a good lineup, guys, because they told them that the guy was young and, you know, whatever. So they're like, we'll bring one guy that matches the description and then we'll bring five other guys who look nothing like it. And the point of a lineup is to get people that are that look similar. I mean, it's much harder to ID somebody. Well, yeah, it's like putting him in a lineup with two dogs, a chicken and a goat. And it's like, which guy did it? Mm -hmm. 
And we also learned from our coverage on um, our Patreon show, Doc Jams, of the Innocence Files that many people, when they're shown a lineup, believe that the police have found the person that committed the crime. You're just supposed to tell them which one it was. So, because many times you will not, and sometimes you do see an eyewitness say, that person's not here, but it's almost like this confirmation bias kind of thing where they're like, well, the police wouldn't put a lineup in front of me if they haven't found the person, right? So they think their job is just to tell you which one of them it is. Not that it's possible that the person is not even there. Right, exactly. There's a whole psychological process in this thing. I mean, and again, like in just the criminal justice system in general, that most people believe that a prosecutor is not going to prosecute somebody who didn't do something wrong and that the police aren't going to arrest somebody that didn't do something wrong, you know? Right. But yeah, that, that was the lineup. It was 21 year old Chester Weger, and then like five other like men, at least 20 years older than him who looked nothing like him. When Weger was confronted about the robbery and rape, he reportedly asked for his mother and she said to him, son, now tell the truth. And then he confessed to this crime as well. The morning after his confession, Chester Weger was brought to St. Louis Canyon and at Starved Rock Park to reenact the murders and explain to several reporters what had happened. He told the reporters that he went to grab the purse of one of the ladies, but he realized that it was not a purse, it was a camera. And he said that Mrs. Murphy hit him with the binoculars, so he grabbed the frozen branch he saw and began beating the women with it. And he said that he took their clothes off to make it appear that it was a rape, but his motive was actually robbery. So Chester's trial began in February of 1961. At the trial, the jury heard Uyghur's confession and were presented with the evidence found at the scene. Now, even now, if a jury hears that somebody confessed, I mean, that's really, most people are gonna, I don't know, a lot of people will be like, well, then what, what else do we need to do here? It's all it takes, yeah. Yeah, but in 1961, he confessed to it? Mm-hmm. False confessions were not, I don't even know that that was a term that was used then. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, serial killer sure shit wasn't. And it's not, obviously, it's not like we had podcasts and armchair detectives and things like that back then. So people didn't know as much as we, we know now. And mm-hmm. we still have so far to go. Mm-hmm. For sure. But, you know, the, a jury hears this confession. I mean, come on. In his confession, though, Uyghur stated that he'd heard and seen a red and white airplane flying over the park. And that's why he moved the bodies into the cave because the police were very confused about like, why not just leave them there? Why drag them all the way into the cave kind of thing? And he's like, well, there was this airplane that was flying over. I was afraid they would be seen. So I dragged them into the cave. So the pilot of the red airplane confirmed that he had flown over Star Rock Park on the day of the murders. Chester's suede jacket was also entered into evidence and discussed at the trial. It had been found that there was blood spatter on his jacket, and it was said to be human blood. Uyghur's co-worker stated in their interviews that, remember, he'd come in to work the day after the murders. He had scratches all over his face. They described it as it looked like he'd been in a fight. And he tells them, I scratched my, or I um, cut myself shaving, which doesn't really, now I've not seen pictures of these scratches. I don't know that anybody has photos of them. It's just people, coworkers said that they saw it, but they certainly were not consistent with shaving. 
After hearing the confession and seeing the evidence, the jury found Chester Rieger guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison. The prosecution was seeking the death penalty, but the jury refused to impose it. The signed confession was what led the jury to find Weger guilty, but they just couldn't justify the death penalty based on the evidence. And that's like basically saying that like the confession is what really sealed the deal for them, but there wasn't any other evidence at all to tie him to the case. And so they just didn't want to go through with the death penalty. Chester has maintained his innocence since he recanted his confession in 1960. There are so many people who believe that he's guilty, and there are a lot of people who believe that he's innocent. I mean, it feels very like half and half, especially when in the documentary, the docuseries, when they were asking so many people, we got as many yeses as noes. But Mm -hmm. there was a committee to free Uyghur formed in, it was after Obviously, he had been in prison for quite some time, but it had three members. It was Dave Marsh, Deidre Fox, and Bob Petrie. And the three individuals have strong feelings that Chester is innocent and believe that he was set up. They believe that George Spiros was involved and that because it was an election year, Harlan Warren wanted to be known as the person who solved the Starved Rock murders before leaving office, if not reelected. I mean, yeah, we see that a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see a lot of prosecutions are very, very political. And there's plenty of, you know, there's plenty of cases in which you won't get any type of like evidentiary hearing or anything until the current DA is out of office because it's one of their platform, you know, like it's yeah. very political. Well, and not only that, but Harlan Warren, before he passed away, if you were to watch the HBO docuseries, there is footage of him. He had written a book or I think he had written a book, but he was going around to these like guest speaking engagements and he was so proud to be like, I'm the guy. Mm-hmm. I solved it. I also read that he and another detective split the $35,000 reward. Yes. Yeah, because they technically solved it. Now, how in the world is that legal? It shouldn't be legal. You, yeah. if, if you, in fact, did solve it, let's say you did. If they've solved it, that's their, that's their job. That's, your, that's already your job. Like The reason rewards are in place is to hopefully get somebody with information to come forward so that the police or investigators or whoever, DA's office, whoever it's going to be, can then do their job. But you... It's such a conflict of interest for that person who's investigating it to receive the money. Well, yeah, because then it calls into question, did you actually find the guy or did you just want the money? Uh-huh. But everybody's exactly. like, well, I guess half people, but they're like, no, he no, he solved it. He just he just also got the money. <laughs> right. There's no it, no ulterior motive for solving it. I mean, exactly. Like- yeah. So, I mean, Harlan Warren, he ended up losing the election, but he is known as the person who solved the case despite not trying it in court. Along with the committee, Chester Weger's appeals attorney from the early 2000s and his current attorney believe that he is innocent. In 2001, Donna Kelly became Chester's appeals attorney and filed a clemency petition. Y'all, Donna Kelly. Donna Kelly. Okay. If you followed Elizabeth Holmes at all, We all know Elizabeth Holmes' voice is completely fake. Uh Uh-huh. The voice that she puts out there, that deep voice or whatever. Donna Kelly is what she meant to do. 
Yes. Donna Kelly is what she strived for. She missed the mark on it, though. She sure did. Because Donna Kelly's got it, like, down. Mm Mm-hmm. At the clemency hearing in 2005, Donna stated that the confession had been involuntary and was only given because of physical and psychological abuse. So, this is Donna. The confession had been involuntary and was only given because of the physical and psychological abuse. That's it. That's Donna. And that's what Elizabeth Holmes meant to do. Didn't. She didn't do it. Tried. Didn't. Yanked. In Uyghur's original trial in 1961, Deputy Dummett testified that he never threatened Uyghur about riding a thunderbolt. However, Craig Armstrong, an assistant state's attorney, who was also in the vehicle with Dummett and Uyghur, testified that he did threaten Uyghur at least five times. Mm-hmm. It has also been said that Deputy Dummett was putting a gun on Uyghur during the interrogation and hitting him. Chester has also stated that the night of the arrest, deputies Dummett and Hess had already had a confession written out and it was read to him 10 to 15 times. And like, guys, this is the, we'll just never know because this Mm -hmm. interrogation was not recorded. We don't have any photos. We don't have any video. We don't have any audio. Like, we don't know. And... Almost everyone involved in the case has passed away now. They've passed away. And like Deputy Dummett was multiple people who worked with him in law enforcement described him as corrupt. You couldn't trust the damn word that came out of his mouth. You couldn't trust the integrity of any convictions that he was a part of. No. And they all were just like, oh, that's common knowledge. <laughs> yeah. You know, so now there is no evidence. If if Chester Weger had been beaten with a gun, you would think there would have been marks on his body. And we don't have any evidence of that. And he didn't really say that until much, much later. Mm -hmm. So his credibility is called into question, too. And I think that it is important to note that Chester Chester's account of the things that happened Ha- they it has changed a lot, yes. not just on the alleged beatings, a lot of things. His alibi, his, you know, we'll get into a lot of that. But he has he's just not credible. I mean, and I don't know if any part of that has to do with his age now. I don't know, but it has changed consistently. Yeah, yeah. and it it started changing before he began to really age. Yeah. But now, definitely. I mean, and I don't know. I feel like if if you're going to go and talk to him, you know, now and ask him about that day and he gets details wrong, like, of course he does. You know, I don't know. Well, and he's yeah, been in prison his entire life. This is 60 years ago. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that can happen, obviously, to your, to a, everything, but your mental state as well. So, I mean, it's just, it's just hard because that, you know, it, it was a different time and we don't, we didn't have Brady, Brady wasn't even a thing yet. Like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you guys, um, it's us again. Yay. It's us. We threw, we threw you for a loop on this one. (laughs) Uh, so we know that a lot of you have been asking like WTF, where are episodes one through 44? And guess what? Now you can have them. So let's just remember, though, we need you to take a little caution here. 
we didn't know exactly what we were doing back then. And we started this podcast as just a fun thing to do as sisters. We had no idea that it would grow into this super awesome club with you guys. So what we're saying is the audio wasn't super amazing, but the content is 100% us just being us and talking about some true crime with 90s flair. Okay, so here are the details. You'll be able to access our, what we're calling OG episodes in your favorite podcast app through a private and custom RSS feed link. So to grab that, head over to killerqueens.link slash OG and snag episodes one through 44 today. That's killerqueens.link slash OG. So another argument for Uyghur's innocence is that the physical evidence does not match his confession. So there were two different hair samples found at the crime scene, which suggests two killers. In the confession, Uyghur said that the motive was robbery, but nothing, like Charles said, nothing was taken. The jewelry watches nothing. The red airplane that was seen flying over the park the day of the murders is another point of contention. Deputy Dummett was a member of Ottawa's Airmen Club, where the plane is housed, and it is possible that he was um, he's flown the plane before. There is an affidavit from Homer Charbonneau, the pilot of the red plane, stating that he did fly the plane over the park that day, but it's speculated that Deputy Dummett knew the plane had been flown over prior to the confession and had told Chester. Yeah, I wonder, for me, that boils down to when Chester mentioned it in his confession. Like, Mm -hmm. was it weeks later? Was it months later? Was it, you know, how much time would Dummett have had to gather that information? And like, what is he, he's going to the airplane club, airman club and asking around, did any of you guys fly over the park that day? Like, I don't know. That seems like a detail that, I mean, he got the color of it right too. So I don't know. It's, it's all a mess. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But but we Chester's, can't trust him. I mean, we cannot trust no, him at all. No. Chester's buckskin jacket has also been in question. It was said that in court that the blood found on the jacket was human, but that determination wasn't made until September of 1960. So prior to September, it had been determined to either be raccoon or squirrel blood, which would make sense because Chester hunted both of those. So how did it all of a sudden become human blood? I don't know. I've, I've kind of read... Um, differing accounts on that that like but see and that's the thing too i mean you can read all kinds of stuff and you i don't know that you'll get one you can maybe get similar accounts but i don't think there's any defining like this is exactly what took place you know Mm -hmm. the timeline can be fuzzy too it's like it just this is a difficult case like i don't i don't know Mm -hmm. and everything's so old that a lot of this evidence is degraded and like like you know if we could test that jacket right now, we, you know, isn't one of the victim's blood done? Right. Absolutely. There is another argument for his innocence. And it's a story told by Sandra Bland, who is a friend of the Uyghur family. And she said that she was 15 at the time of the trial and was called over to a black car one night. She said that she was called over by Stanley Tucker, Chester's best friend and his girlfriend. And Stanley told Sandra that he testified in court and lied on the stand because they, quote unquote, threatened him, and he didn't want to spend the rest of his life in prison. Sandra also says that Stanley told her that Chester wasn't involved and that it was him and George Spiros. And Stanley told her that if the police had searched his car, they would have found evidence in his trunk. Donna Kelly, the appeals attorney, 
with the voice, believes that two people were involved in the murder, one of them being Stanley Tucker and the other being George Spiros. And Donna gave these names to the state's attorney. And just days later, George Spiros was dead. By this time, Stanley Tucker had already passed. And on May 2nd, 2005, George Spiros left groceries on his doorstep. He goes into his house and he killed himself and his dog. He... I just can't. He was found naked from the waist down after grocery shopping for the week. That's interesting timing. Yes. George Spiros had told the police in an interview that he had seen Chester Weger and Stanley Tucker talking to the women at the park the day of the murders. But Chester's mom was the maid for the Spiros family and had bloody clothes in George's closet and told the police about it. And by the time the police went to look at it, the clothes are gone. Another thing that people believe points to George Spiros was that he was sent to Greece just months after the murders. Another theory about the murders is that Smokey Rona was one of the killers. Alice Rona, Smokey's sister, said that he was one of the killers and former state's attorney Brian Town said that Smokey Rona was responsible for bad things that happened in the town. It's been estimated that he killed 13 people. According to Alice, the women's husbands were behind it and Smokey got $25,000 for the murder. That's far-fetched to me. Far-fetched. This is 1960. These men have already put $30,000 together between the three of them. Let's just say that it's evenly split, so $10,000 each. And now they've got to come up with another $25,000. Like, that's $55,000 in 1960. And if... I would have bought you, like, at least one house, but probably two in a car. And if they had been behind the murders, if they had hired a hitman to kill their wives, why in the world would they give the detectives $30,000 to solve the case? Like, yeah, why would you put more money into it? Like, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't buy it. That's 100% sure. Yeah. Couple things to note, though. So, Bill Dummett, deputy dumbass, took the log the three women were brutally beaten and killed with, and he put it on his mantle as a trophy. That's heinous. Mm-hmm. That's inappropriate. It's heinous. It's disgusting. It's insensitive. Mm-hmm. The weapon that the these women were brutally murdered with, and you have it on your mantle? And another thing, which we talked about a little bit earlier, but Harlan Warren, Bill Dummett, it was okay. So Harlan Warren, Bill Dummett, and Wayne Hess—they all split the reward money. Conflict of two deputies and a state's attorney. I don't think so. There are also things that point to Chester being guilty, though. So in Chester's original interview, what was used in court was that he was in the break room alone writing a letter to a girl. Remember, in 2003 at the clemency hearing, his alibi changed. Now he says, now being 2003, says that he was in Oglesby with Stanley Tucker and he'd got a haircut at Ben Franklin's barbershop. And then after the haircut, he went to work. There is a signed affidavit by Ben Franklin stating not the founding father. I was going to say, he knows Ben Franklin? I know. I know. It's pretty incredible. They like fly kites together and stuff. (laughs) They wear spectacles together. Exactly. Um, But Mr. Franklin signed an affidavit saying that Uyghur was at the barbershop that day. And Uyghur says that his trial attorney in 1961, John McNamara, called him to the stand and he had memory failure, so he changed his story. If you were getting a haircut that day, I don't think you'd forget that when your life is on the line. No, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, I don't know. 
And remember earlier, we also talked about the rape of the eight-year-old girl. Um, And Chester had said that he didn't do it, but he'd helped her get dressed and he'd walked her home. What actually happened, according to a report, is that Chester had grabbed her and raped her. There was a sign of penetration and there was blood. And Chester, Chester had blood on him, okay? So Chester's parents noticed that he had blood all over his pants when he got home. And when asked about it, he said, I killed a snake. And then the police questioned him and then he confessed. But if you had, in fact, say she did bleed from this trauma and you picked her up and carried her and for whatever reason, her blood got on you, wouldn't you say that? Wouldn't you say she was bleeding when I picked her up and that's why I have blood on me? But instead he says, I killed a snake. Yeah. I happened to kill a snake. The same day that I carried a girl home who'd been raped and I had nothing to do with it. I happened upon her, but also killed a snake. It's very reminiscent of, I have blood all over my buckskin jacket, but I killed a raccoon or whatever. Mm -hmm. I have scratches all over my face, but that was, I cut myself shaving. Like, yeah, he seems to explain away a lot of stuff that would, the explanations could have been explained better or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's, and it's a lot, I, I just feel like, there are not that many coincidences. Right. Like, is it possible that because we we kind of really don't know whether or not the blood on the buckskin jacket is human or not. There are conflicting reports. You will see both things written, printed, reported, whatever. Sure. But, you know, like you said, how many coincidences are we going to have? Like, what are the odds that when he was eight or when he was 12, that an attack happened and he had nothing to do with it killed a snake the same day and the snake got blood on him. And he was right there after it happened. And he was right there after it happened. And then 15 years later or whatever, not even, these three women are killed and he uses the kind of same explanation to explain this blood away. Oh, it's animal blood. Mm -hmm. And this other attack has happened and he was in the area. We don't know that he was in the park necessarily, but he's certainly in the area. He worked at the lodge. Mm Mm-hmm. That they were out just before that. Right. And he's got scratches all over his face. Right. I don't know. But that was obviously from shaving. Uh, yeah, just, I don't, I don't know where I fall on this case exactly, but half the time I'm like, well, it doesn't, I don't know. I don't know if he did it. And then other times I'm like, well, it does sound like he, he had something to do with it. I don't know if he acted alone because he's, this is a tiny guy. He was tiny. Well, right. And the police, when they got to the scene and they saw, because the women were beaten with more than one thing, the they're considering that log the murder weapon, but they were also hit with the camera and the binoculars, binoculars. I think. Yeah. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So there's a few different weapons there. And so the police were very convinced from the jump, this is multiple attackers, right? Well, because a lot of times, unless you have a weapon that malfunctions in some type of way, the gun jams, the log breaks, whatever, you're not going to switch weapons. You're going to con- you're going to continue to use the same yeah. weapon. Yeah, multiple weapons is definitely indicative of multiple attackers, perpetrators. Absolutely, yeah. yes. It's not always people have certainly picked up more than one weapon, but you would think, but, you know, oh yeah, I don't know. It's it's not. It's, I would say it's more rare than not, though. This isn't Goldeneye. We're not just picking up guns and ammo all over the place. Slaps only, you know? Exactly, yeah. Throughout the years, Chester, or that Chester was in prison, he went up for parole and he was denied 23 times. At his 24th parole hearing in November of 2019, he was granted parole in a nine to four vote. Many people believe that he was finally granted parole because Anthony Recuglia, the prosecutor who tried the case in 1960, had passed away and he was not there to argue for him to stay in prison. And he was a big time bulldog about keeping him in prison. Mm -hmm. February of 2020, right before the pandemic, Chester Weger was released after spending 60 years in prison and he was Illinois' longest serving prisoner. Andy Hale now represents Chester Weger and is doing everything he can to clear his name. There was still some evidence that he sent to be tested for DNA in 2021, and he got results back in 2022. He sent in hairs that were found on the glove of Mrs. Murphy's left index finger, and it is noted that the tip of this finger was cut off post-mortem, and they found twine and cigarette butts, so they had them tested as well. The only piece of evidence that had enough genetic material to test was the hair, and it was found that it belongs to a male profile that is not Chester Weger. They are hoping to find DNA in CODIS that matches. That is huge because everybody, before this DNA testing happened, everybody who you heard talk about the case, any interview that you heard said those hairs, that's the killer. They're mm-hmm. in her hand. She's pulled hair out. Now, there were two different kinds of hairs, lighter colored hair, darker colored hair. As far as we know, the darker colored hair was never tested. Right. But it doesn't belong to Chester. Right. Now what? It's possible that he was there and there were multiple attackers. Absolutely. But all of these people were like, that's the hill I'm going to die on, right? If we get that test and it doesn't come back to Chester, it wasn't him because the hairs in her hand are the killer's. Mm-hmm. Hands down. And it's not his. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. That's basically, yeah. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's like, well, that doesn't make sense, and that doesn't make sense, and that doesn't make sense. But obviously, she wasn't carrying around a handful of hair with her for days. That hair happened during that attack. She pulled that hair absolutely. out during the attack. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> I know. I know. Andy Hale has also poured over reports and paperwork in regard to the case and found a police report that he calls the quote-unquote smoking gun in the case. There is a two-page police report from April 20th, 1960 from a woman named Lois Zelensek. Sure. Zelensek? Yeah. She was a phone operator and overheard a conversation when she went to advise that their time was up on March 21st, 1960. She heard the man calling from Aurora, and this is a city between Chicago and LaSalle. 
talking about the write-up in the paper about the murders. He said that the kid had bloodstained overalls in the trunk of his car and was getting anxious on what to do with them and was afraid he was going to get caught. The man on the LaSalle line told him that he should get rid of the overalls and burn them. And what this call does is show that there were three people involved in the case, according to Andy Hill. Like we said, Andy Hale does have a podcast. Um, It's called The Starved Rock Murders with Andy Hale. And a listener got in touch with him and told him that her grandfather was in the mob. She said that in a deathbed confession, he told her that he selected the three men to kill the women because one of their husbands wanted his wife dead. She also said that her grandfather was upset that the wrong man was in jail. According to Hale, he spoke face-to-face with her and he she was sobbing and shaking, leading him to 100% believe the story. There is also a man who was friends with Smokey Rona that said Smokey told him that the murders were a mob hit. I mean, how rich were these husbands, though? I just, that's a lot of money to put up. How do you know that you're going to put up that money and that the investigators are going to fuck the whole case up? You don't know that. What if they solve it? And what if they lead? it leads back to you? That just doesn't right. make any sense to me. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would be a risky move to make if it indeed happened. I just don't, I don't know if I I believe that though. I just don't. And also like these women's husbands, unless there's evidence to support that they had them killed, that is re-victimizing somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, to say something like that. And I know in the documentary, people were like, well, the guy that they said did it, he married his secretary or something, or this woman that he had started dating only six weeks later. And that's proof. And then you find out that it was a typo in a report that they read. And it was like three years later or something or five years later. Yeah. It's just like, so not only do they have to go through grieving and losing their spouses, but now potentially have to fight for their innocence. It's just, it's so having their wives killed. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And try to prove to everyone and not have their character assassinated. Like it's, I don't know. I don't know. If you're going to have your wife killed, wouldn't you have her killed? Like when you know she's going to be at home by herself, not out with three women or out with two other women, like, and you're just like, kill all three of them. I don't care. Like that's a, you got to be pretty evil to be like, well, they're collateral damage. Too bad. So sad. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I don't know. In October of 2022, Andy Hale submitted all of their evidence to the state's attorney with the request that Chester Weger's conviction be vacated. In December of 2022, they declined to vacate due to the evidence being considered hearsay and unverified. They also said that there was not enough evidence to vacate the conviction. Andy Hale is continuing to work on the case and has no intentions of giving up. He has filed a petition in court for post-conviction relief in Illinois. When it goes to court, they are planning on submitting the same evidence as before, along with expert witnesses and forensic evidence. And once it goes to court, the state's attorney will have the chance to oppose and a judge will ultimately decide. And Beth is on it. She has subscribed to the newsletter, so we can give an update whenever that happens. Yeah. And of course, I mean, there is a lot more on this case. We have mentioned it before. We're going to say it again. There's so much on this case. So if you do want more than what we've been able to provide you with the time given, there is the podcast that Andy Hill does. There's the doc, uh, docu series on HBO. There's a lot of things that you can go through if, um, if you need to. And of course we'll have all the sources linked below. So absolutely. 
Well, we're really interested to see what you guys think. Do you think he's innocent? Do you think he's guilty based on the evidence? Um, I mean, the the hair not matching him is is significant. So I give that obviously 100% more weight than other people being like, I heard it was this the twine. Person. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. But we're interested to see what you guys think about it. And, um, you know, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for watching. If you're watching and listening, if you're listening, we love you and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. All right, you guys, it's shout out time. These are our newest patrons and we want to say a special thank you to Natalie Hollinger, Kelly Road, Audrey Ham, Colo Davies, Kathy Riley, Mindy Cates, Hannah Vets, Jackie Salem, Christina Fields, Mary Ellen Caparco, Kelly Rickardson, Wisteria Curry, Sim, Stephanie Holycat, Beverly West, Vivian Garakani, Stephanie Saylor, Autumn Miller, Jasmine Stillwell, Kathy Chevette, Leah Rochelle Sewell, and Sharice Stilts. You guys, thank you so much. We love you. We appreciate you. Thank you for making this our job. Couldn't do it without you. If you want your very own shout out, aka you want us to fuck your name right up, definitely join the Patreon, $10 or higher. It's a thrill to have your name fucked up. Totally. 100%. Yeah. Worth it. But thank you guys so much. We love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye! The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.